0: While Jesus loves you, goes the uh, bumper sticker. Maybe you've seen that one. And I saw or heard about the other day a big truck, a big semi going by that said, Trucking for Jesus. Now, I don't know exactly what that guy was doing in there. Maybe it means if they sideswipe you on the left side, yea, turn unto him your right side also. Or if they overtake you on the right, then also let him overtake you on the left. I'm not sure. Of course, it's possible, I'm sure, to be... uh, thinking thoughts about Jesus, of peace, of love, of all of that, and driving a truck. You've probably seen the posters, Jesus is love, or the bumper stickers about smile, Jesus loves you. And I suppose the semi-psychedelic posters in many a teenager's room, maybe some of your children, or maybe you are a teenager and you have one like that. If you ask people on the street, what was Jesus' message? They're liable to tell you, well, it was peace, it was love, he came to abolish hatred, he came to bring us a message about how to love one another, and so on. He came to bring a message of peace. That's what we have asked on sidewalk surveys, and that's precisely what people have told us, that he came to bring the world brotherly love. But the love of God, and especially the love of Jesus, is advertised in pop songs, movies, or posters and bumper stickers. What did Jesus mean by love? What's it all about, as the teenage song might go? Peace, peace, says one scripture in the Bible, in the book of Jeremiah, They yell about peace, they talk about peace, when, as the scripture goes on to say, there is no peace. That's the characterization of our world today. We hear a lot of peace parlays going on. We hear of a new round of GATT talks, or of tariff and trade talks. We hear about summit meetings, the non-aligned nations conferences. We hear of all the manipulations of many nations and blocks of nations, like the European Economic Community and the Common Market, like the new supergiant of Japan and its trade negotiations with other countries in a global sense and with the United States. We hear of people trying to forge out methods of achieving peace in the Middle East, of the Jew-Arab controversy, of the Indo-Chinese, but perhaps it's better to say Cambodian, Laos, and Vietnam situation. Wherever you go around the world, there are either hot spots right now or potential trouble spots for the brush-fire-type wars that have plagued the world by more than 50 of them since World War II. People during all this time, though, at all levels, whether in religious assemblies or whether at summit conferences between heads of state, have talked about world peace. And people who talk about the love of Jesus say that Jesus came to bring us peace. But why isn't there peace on earth right now? And by the way, a little aside at the moment, do you know that the scripture that says, quote, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, is not in the Bible? Now you're thinking, oh, I caught him this time. That's not true. Uh, I just know that's got to be in the Bible. No, it isn't. When I say the Bible, by the way, I mean primarily the authorized version as it can be demonstrated by the many Bible helps and by the original codices from which that version must be understood in the most essential originals of the Bible, as closely as you can get to that original. And this is not just my idea, but the most broadly accepted scholarship of many, many different religious organizations and institutions and the like. Technically, that scripture could better be rendered, peace on earth among men of goodwill, or peace on earth among men in whom he, God, is well pleased, believe it or not. And so, since we don't have men of goodwill, and God is not well pleased with men, there isn't any peace on earth. You know, the Bible also says about this thing of peace, whether we think that's what Jesus came to bring. It says in the book of Psalms, great peace have they who love thy law. Now, not many people love the law of God. Most people tend to hate it. Many religionists tend to hate it. If they give lip service to the Ten Commandments, there is one in particular they always want to seem to avoid. You can figure out which one that is if you can just read it. The average person of the broad majority of the mainstream of evangelical Christian thought does not really resent too much. The first one of having no other gods before God, or of not making graven images. Most people argue they don't do that, and certainly taking pictures of your loved ones doesn't mean doing that, and I agree it doesn't. And, of course, taking the name of God in vain, well, you know, most Christian folk believe it. It's wrong to curse and swear. No problem there. Now, you could skip over one there if you'd like, because that's where we get hung up. Nobody really gets worried too much about stealing, adultery, about all of this business of false witnessing, coveting, and so on. Thou shalt do no murder, you shall not kill. Christians agree with that. Honor your father and your mother. What's wrong with those laws? Absolutely nothing. But what about that fourth one? Well, now, there you get a little bit of a hang-up, because people say that it says, Remember the Sabbath day. Then, of course, you have the types who have read the Bible, who look in the Bible, and they look in the Old Testament, and they see that the only day that God ever said was holy the only day the apostles and the prophets alike, whether New and Old Testament, ever worshipped upon, including Jesus Christ himself, was the Sabbath day. And uh, so they wonder, well, yeah, but it must have been chained somewhere. And so the, the general idea is that Jesus came along to do away with the Ten Commandments, do away with the law of his Father, so you don't obey them because you have to obey them and because there's any penalty if you don't. You obey whichever ones appeal to you because you want to and because God is love. Jesus himself inspired John to write, and I quote, This is the love of God. What about this business smile? Jesus loves you. If you go to ask Jesus, what is love? What is love? He will tell you that love consists of two great loves. One is directed toward God and the other towards your neighbor. And he said that, first of all, we've got to love God with all of our hearts, our minds, and our souls, or our very, very innermost being. And secondly... To love our neighbor as ourselves, and in these, he said, is summarized. On these two points hang all the law and the prophets. Well, the first four of the Ten Commandments tell you how to love God, and the last six of the Ten Commandments tell you how to love your neighbor. Jesus inspired John to write, This is the love of God. So if you want to get Jesus' definition of what is the love of God, a godly kind of love, the Bible says, This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Not many people agree with that statement. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. But that's in the Bible, too. In the New Testament, 1 John 5 and verse 3, peace and love, they say, was the message of Jesus. But when you look into the Bible definitions of peace, you find in Isaiah 59, the way of peace they, that is, world leaders, know not. That man does not know the way to peace. There is a way to peace. What is that way? Jesus came to show the way to peace, but peace means different things to different people, unfortunately. And it was Jesus who also said and inspired to be written, When they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes. How do you square then the many statements in the Bible about peace and safety and that of sudden destruction? Did Jesus come to give us a message that is nothing but a kind of a sentimentality of let's love everybody? but has nothing to do whatsoever with Christian conscience, with a way of life, with being obedient to laws, higher laws of God as well as laws of one's own civil community? Is peace possible apart from law and apart from an orderly, systematic society? Did Jesus do away with his Father's law? When I come back, I'm going to show you that Jesus said for you not to think something, and most all of your life you've been thinking precisely what he told you not to think. Jesus Christ.
1: Millions know his name, but he's still a man nobody knows. How could a dead Jesus hanging on a cross ever do anything for mankind? These artists' conceptions are not the dynamic, masculine, powerful Christ described by your Bible. The man from Galilee is shrouded in mystery. Millions disagree on the manner of his birth, his message, his family, why and if he dies the resurrection, and where he is now. The Christian world is confused about the true Jesus. Now discover the real Jesus. Prove what he taught, how he lived, and who he is from the pages of your Bible. To request your free copy of The Real Jesus,
0: should let me send you that booklet just as soon as we can possibly receive your letter we'll have it into a sack of mail with others and on its way to you by return mail as quickly as we get your request for it and it's absolutely free of charge there is no follow up of any kind there is no bill to follow now this booklet i had a great deal to do with because i wrote it myself and it has a great deal to do with the real jesus that i've been discussing in a series of programs having to do with whether or not he was a property owner a taxpayer Uh, statements that are made about Jesus and his family. It shows that he had brothers and sisters, that Mary went on to have at least seven children by the very uh, smallest number that you can honestly calculate. And it gives you the scriptures where you can discover these things for yourself in your own Bible. I told you I would tell you that Jesus said, don't think something. And you probably have been thinking it all of your life. I think most people think. that Jesus came to do away with his father's law. That Jesus came in New Testament times to basically erase everything that belonged to Old Testament times. That under the Old Testament regime of this God of the Old Testament, many people don't realize that personage of the Godhead, is the very one who became Jesus Christ in the New Testament, another doctrine all by itself, but you don't even need me to prove that to you. You can simply open up your Bible right now or any other time you choose and read the first chapter of the Gospel of John, And you'll have that proved to you without any other person present, with no Bible helps, with no one there to interpret it, without me there to suggest that it means something else or anything of the kind. You can do the same thing in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. But the basic idea seems to be, even though it is contrary to Scripture, that the God of the Old Testament was a harsh, law-giving God, a God that breathed fire and brimstone, who was always ready to kill people for breaking his law. But Jesus Christ of the New Testament came along to destroy that law, to do away with it, abrogate it, beat it to death, you know, erase it, rescind it, do away with it. He tells people in Matthew, the fifth chapter, in verse 17, right in the middle of one of the greatest parts of the Bible, you might say, the Sermon on the Mount, not to think something. Let's see how obedient we are to a simple command of Jesus Christ. Think not that I am come to destroy the law, or the prophets. Now, technically, that means the first five books of the Bible, and much with the possible exception of what is called the writings, including the Psalms and so on, of the rest of the Old Testament, meaning Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, and all the rest of them. He says, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, when you fill up to the full, you do or perform an obligation. It was just exactly as Jesus said later. I have kept... My Father's commandments. And of the young nobleman that came to him and wanted to know, Master, what good thing must I do to be saved? To enter into life. To receive salvation. Matthew 19, 17. You can read that in your own Bible where Jesus said, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one. That is God. But if you will enter into life, keep the commandments. The only commandments you know of in the entirety of your Bible dignified by the word commandments that any other Bible scholar knows of or found back in the twentieth chapter of Exodus and the fifth of Deuteronomy, where you find the repetition to the orations of Moses of the ten commandments of God, which include the fourth commandment and all of the others. Jesus says to the world in general today, and he expects them to believe it and to obey it. He said, repent ye and believe the gospel. Now, here's a part of the gospel. Here's a part of the message of Christ. Here's the Sermon on the Mount, the way to live, the way to turn the other cheek, which I was kind of... uh, Uh, talking about a little bit about how do you truck for Jesus. But, you know, you could. You could drive a truck in complete obedience to the laws of Jesus Christ, in courtesy and with consideration for the other fellow, and in safety, having good equipment, being alert, not drinking while you're driving, and so on. You could do it in a Christian way. I don't mean to say that a person could not drive a truck, in in a sense, he might say spiritually, for Jesus, because he could. But the point is that millions of people think, Jesus did away with his Father's law, with the Ten Commandments, and it says, Think not, I am come to destroy the law, or the prophets I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Over in Luke six forty six, he said, Why call you me Lord, Lord, recognizing he is Lord, attributing to him the messianic office, you might say, of being the Christ. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, he said, and do not the things which I say. You know, loving Jesus has to do with obeying Jesus, believing not only on him, but believing him, believing what he said. There are millions of people who will wave aside and sometimes with a little bit of anger, get a little bit glandular about it, a little upset about it, what Jesus told them to do, what he commands them in written scripture, and yet insist that they love the Lord. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? I say then, if any person who calls himself a Christian can look into the Bible and can find direct, succinct commands where Jesus says, do this, this do, as I have done unto you, and there's one such command that has to do with the ceremony I'll talk about in a few moments, that nearly no one performs today, and yet can still acknowledge that he is the Lord, well, Jesus has a very unkind thing to say about that a little bit later. And John repeats it in his books back at the end of the New Testament. In Matthew 23, and verse 23, he said, and I quote, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Weightier matters of the law. Judgment, mercy, and faith. Jesus talking about the law, and talking about the law and mercy in the face of the law. And he said, These ought you to have done. So Jesus said they paid tithe, And he said, these ought you to have done, paid tithes, and not to leave the other undone, which is the weightier matters of the law of judgment, of mercy, and of faith. And so Jesus himself said repeatedly, he did not come to do away with his father's law. And yet today people want to appropriate a kind of a You might say a household God, an imaginary figure of Jesus Christ. It might not even appear to be the way the Bible describes him as I covered last time. And then perhaps certain rituals would be very, very satisfying. Many people really enjoy a good ritual. And the more satisfying that ritual is to them, the better they like it. Ritual has always been an important part of religion with processions and robes, symbols, rites, or at least so it was thought. And today, many people are seeking to find more meaning in age-old ritual. They're looking in new modes of worship to supply what the long-used ceremonies lack. An example is a new movement called Catholic Pentecostalism. They claim that speaking in tongues makes the Mass more meaningful to them. Meanwhile, although getting less publicity, there are those who see danger in the new trends and call for firm adherence to the ritual once delivered. The Mass, as well as Protestant church services, has also been adopted by folk and rock music, rather unlikely converts, you might say, and yet the young have done it, and surprised the establishment by bringing the now culture to the ancient faith. But the establishment is also doing it. Some clergymen earning titles such as the best archbishop as they try to bring ancient forms of worship to the new generation. The modernization of church ritual is a new thing, and a lot of people are coming up with a lot of new rituals too. But the idea that ritualism, of the observance of certain modes or postures of the body or processional things and having various artifacts and objects and things surrounding you that this is satisfying in a religious sense. When you look into the Bible, you ask yourself, what did Jesus do that you can call ritual? What were the things he did? There were certain ceremonies he observed, were there? Well, yeah, you can find what they were. Then you ask yourself, do people in the Christian church do those things today? Or do they think that's Jewish? What did Jesus do? Here's one scripture, Luke 4, 16, in the King James Version. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So it was Jesus' custom to go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up for to read. So one thing Jesus did, he kept Sabbath, and he read the Bible on the Sabbath. That's what the Bible says. Luke 22, verse 15, in Moffat's version, it says this. He said to them, I have longed eagerly to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The Only one text, of which there are many, many, that prove Jesus kept the Passover, and he told his disciples, this do, as I have done unto you. And that's repeated clear back in 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, where the apostle Paul says that it's enjoined upon Gentile Christians. Another thing Jesus did besides going into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and reading the Bible, was he observed the Passover. Notice in John 7, 8 through 10, King James Version again. Go you up into this feast, I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet full come. When he had said these words unto them he abode still in Galilee, but when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up to the feast, but not openly, but as it were in secret. What feast? Well, it was the Feast of Tabernacles, as the Bible explains. And Jesus stood up in what was called Solomon's Porch, Solomon's Porch on the last great day. And that's when he said that uh, something about love that is in John, the book of John. And it was quite a speech that he made in public. And it was on the last great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, something that many people have not even heard of in the Christian religion. And yet Jesus did it. That was one of the things he kept, one of the things he did. Another thing that he did. Matthew 14, 23, in the King James Version. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray, and when evening was come, he was there alone. So Jesus goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, keeps the Sabbath, reads the Bible, observes the Passover, observes the Feast of Tabernacles, and will go out into a a mountain area alone by himself to pray. And he even told them in a Sermon on the Mount that when you pray, go into your closet, a private place where nobody sees you. Thus Jesus seems by his life's posture, his lifestyle, his way of living, the example that he set all the way through the New Testament, to completely do away with and to negate the reason for the existence of ritual. And the only thing you could even call a ceremony that approaches something people might call ritual, which it isn't, was the observance of the Passover, of the sharing of a little cup of wine, the breaking of bread, the eating and the drinking of those uh, pieces of food, of staples, and the deep solemnity of that occasion that Jesus himself instituted. This he did do. Other than that, you won't find ritualism, but you do find one more example quickly of how Jesus... Uh, rebuked the Pharisees pretty strongly for their belief in it. For example, in Luke 11, 37 to 39, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him, and he went in and sat down to meet. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Another example shows Jesus always washed in the sense that he was clean, he was bathed, but it was not a ceremonial washing. They went through an additional ceremonial washing before dinner. And so the Lord said unto him, Now do you Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. And he continually then put them down for their ritualistic kind of washings. Jesus and ritual simply don't go together because Jesus did not practice ritualism.
1: The Bible is the most widely distributed and misunderstood book in the world. Can you imagine the following discussion taking place over the literary classic Gone with the Wind? They say it's pretty good. It looks awfully dull to me. Wasn't it about a migrant farmer? I never read it, and I don't like books about foreign countries. I wonder what it's all about. Well, I saw the movie. Hey, hey, wait a minute. Read the book. That's all it would take to understand Gone with the Wind. The same solution works equally well with the Bible if you'll just read the book. We can't send you a Bible, but we can help you understand it with the keys explained in this free booklet, Read the Book.
0: The fact that Jesus died, Christ's death, is perhaps one of the most famous deaths in all of history. It's been depicted by artists, it's been written about, there have been, I don't know how many thousands of religious songs that have been sung about Jesus' death, and of course millions of people believe that that's what did it all, and that with Christ's death the entire thing was over, that his death is what saves us. Perhaps Christ is most famous, you might say, for his death. We'll see in a few moments what the Bible says about his life. But it's been sung about, it's been ritualized, this business of the dying of Jesus, and even reenacted by many zealous believers who have been known to lash and even nail themselves to crosses and hang there for hours or days. That has been done in modern times. Every year during the Lenten and Eastern seasons, millions of Christians celebrate the death of the Son of God. The cross, a horrible instrument of torture, has become the principal symbol of Christianity. You'd think that with all the effort being put into celebrating, remembering, and partaking in Christ's death, the world would understand what that death means. And yet, apparently, there are millions who do not understand. Not only do they not understand what the death meant, but there are equally, uh, I think, large numbers of people who were confused about whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, or the entire thing was a hoax or a plot of some sort. And if he did rise from the dead, where did he go? And if he rose from the dead, then what does his life accomplish? Now, I'm going to read to you one of the most shocking scriptures, I believe, that you can find in the entirety of the Bible. You have seen, as many other people have, and you probably had it put in your mind from the time of childhood in Sunday school class, Christ died to save sinners. You've seen that on automobiles and rocks and barns and along the roadway on signs and certain churches. Get out billboards and advertise that statement, Christ died to save sinners. Let me tell you, you are not saved by his death. No, you're not. Shocking? You bet it's shocking. I'm probably going to get you mad if I don't quickly give you the scripture so you can get mad at the Bible, not at me. Let me do that right quick, can I? Romans 5 and verse 10. One of the most shocking scriptures in the entirety of the New Testament. Written by the Apostle Paul, the great proponent of all the teachings of Jesus Christ, who said, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ, who said that he was the least of the apostles and not fit to be an apostle, a humble man, a converted man, the apostle to the Gentiles, who said he had seen Christ personally. He wrote the following. When we, all of us, We're enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Oh, then we are reconciled. What does reconciled mean? It means brought back, brought back. It means put back into a former state or condition. Justification has to do with the removal or the erasing of past guilt. But that doesn't save anybody. That's merely getting you right, getting you square in God's sight again. It says, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled We shall be saved by his life. How about that? What about reading that in your own Bible, Romans 5.10? And not getting angry at me because I say the Bible says that Christians are saved not by the death of Jesus. Not that the death of Jesus Christ isn't the most important death in all of history to you and to me because it is. But the point is there's so much confusion about the mode and the method and the way of salvation about Jesus as a personality, a character, his appearance. When he came, how old he was, how he called his disciples, what he taught them, what is the gospel, whether or not he built his church, whether or not he qualified for world rulership, whether or not he really was dead, or was he kind of a, uh, alive in a certain way when he was in the tomb, or was he all the way dead, as the Bible says, whether or not he was resurrected. And if he was where he went, and what has he been doing ever since, and what does he look like now, and what is his program now? If he's alive today, where is he, and what is he doing? And is he concerned about world conditions? Is he concerned about lunar landings, and about space probes, about the big power blocks, about Arab oil, and about the economies of the world, and the GATT talks, and the European common market. Is Jesus Christ related to a real workaday world, or is it just a religious subject out here of a kind of a household God, of something people appropriate to themselves because they have some need to have an inner anchor for the soul, a kind of a religious expression in order to help them in times of stress to where they can kind of creep into a divinized father figure's arms up in heaven and pray a little bit and have this elder brother vision of the Jesus Christ who they appropriate and make him theirs. Let me tell you, the Bible talks about a Lord, a Savior, and a soon coming King, and one who is going to rule the world, and that we are saved by his life, not just by his death only. You want to write for these booklets? The one entitled The Real Jesus and the one entitled Just What Do You Mean, The Kingdom of God. They're free of charge, no price. You see the address there, you can have them as soon as we get your letter. Until next time, Garner Ted Armstrong, goodbye friends. For the free booklets offered in today's program, dial 903-561-7070. That's 903-561-7070. Operators are standing by 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, to take your free literature request.